I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, lessons from the past for our troubled present. We need to remember that we're the children and the grandchildren of the generation that beat the Great Depression and defeated fascism and imperialism in World War II and went on to create the strongest and most prosperous country in human history. Thanks for joining us. If you're still reeling from the Supreme Court's McCutcheon decision, giving corporations and oligarchs even more power to corrupt democracy with impunity, and if the greatest income inequality since the first Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties has you gasping at the realization that it's happening in America again, and if you have trouble reconciling the promise of America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every citizen with the facts of America, including the fact of immense power and privilege in the hands of so few, if all these bad tidings have you down in the dumps, I have an assignment for you. Read this book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Harvey J. K. published this very week on the 69th anniversary of President Franklin Roosevelt's death, the 12th of April, 1945. At its core is the famous speech FDR made to America less than a year before Pearl Harbor in 1941, calling on the nation to prepare to protect and defend the four essential freedoms, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from want and fear. It's not the first time this historian has reached into the past to find inspiration for our troubled present. His book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, was a rousing invocation of the radical patriot who became the conscience of the American Revolution. Harvey J.K. joins me now. He's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and director of that school's Center for History and Social Change. Harvey, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You opened fire in the very first sentence, we must remember, and then over and again, we must remember, we must remember, we must remember. What exactly are you asking us to remember? We need to remember what our parents and grandparents did. We need to remember that they didn't just beat the Great Depression. They didn't just defeat fascism and imperialism. What they actually did is to go about doing that, inspired by FDR's words, they made America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. And aren't we living in their long shadow? Long, long shadow. <laughs> Absolutely. Look around America today. So much of what we benefit from, of what we enjoy, which is under siege, we owe to that generation. What it comes down to is that we've seen that the four freedoms as they're embodied in social security, the rights of labor, in the advances for women's equality and rights in the 60s. I mean, I, I love to tell my students all the things that were accomplished in the 30s and all the things that were accomplished in the 60s. And you can go one by one, and it's an arc. Mm. It's an arc, a fulfillment, okay? Roosevelt, actually, on the campaign trail was very revealing. I think most historians underestimate just how progressive he was on the campaign trail. There were no surprises. He didn't come in unaware of what he was going to do. And when he takes office and he begins this 100 days and he goes on, first New Deal, second New Deal... He is constantly inviting Americans, not just to take up the labors of the New Deal, but essentially to get organized. One of the lines that very few people come across, but it's the line something like, laws in themselves do not create the new millennium. 
Right? And what he meant by that is, of course, that we can pass laws, but you're going to have to fight. This fight is not only mine, it's ours. And he was a fighter. He took on the oligarchs. He didn't mince words. He warned against the economic autocracy. He said a new despotism had arisen, an industrial dictatorship. He called them economic royalists. He denounced, quote, those few selfish citizens who would clip the wings of the American eagle in order to feather their own nest. I mean, no president's talked like that since Roosevelt. Absolutely not. I mean, I have my students read through inaugural addresses, State of the Union addresses, and I, I start them off with, you know, the 1936 Roosevelt, one speech where he talks about economic royalists. And he's, you know, basically saying they complain that we're out to, you know, overturn American institutions. But what they're really complaining about is we want to overturn their power. And guess what? They're right. (laughs) Now, one president other than FDR would have said that. That's magnificent. I mean, it's the kind of thing you just listen to over and over again. And then he goes off to say, I welcome their hatred. He was a tough fighter against the economic royalists, against the uh, aristocracy of of, of wealth. And he came from that part of the country. And I was taken, although I've read this before, I think you said it so concisely Mm. that, that as a young man growing up, he wasn't particularly sensitive to the poor or sensitive to minorities or sensitive to the marginalized, but that as a victim of polio, he came to possess this great empathy. His labor secretary in her memoir of Roosevelt talks... Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins, thank you. She says, knowing him early on, around 1912, and knowing him later, after he's stricken with polio, it was a changed man, a man filled with a new kind of sensitivity and a sensibility. I also think that Eleanor plays a really fundamental role during the 1920s in introducing him to the women that she's meeting down here in New York City, labor organizers and others, and he's all of a sudden coming to grips with the struggles of working people in the cities. And I think that registered in him. Why was the Four Freedom Speech so important? I think the Four Freedom Speech is important in the most immediate sense of 1941, and that's really the call to war. Americans know what's coming. The call to war is... We need to create an arsenal for democracy. We need to create a Lend-Lease program to secure Britain and its allies against Nazi Germany. And then he says, but don't misunderstand. We have to appreciate that if we're going to prepare ourselves for defense, that we don't give up what we've achieved these last eight years. And he lays out new initiatives. What he knew and what he knew a generation knew was the only way to defend secure and sustain American democracy as you constantly press to enhance it. You test the limits. We're the great experiment in democracy, and he knew that. He knew American history. So here he appears, and how does he close this speech? The four freedoms. And he actually says that these four freedoms are at the heart of American life. They're at the heart of this ongoing, perpetual, and peaceful revolution dating back to the time of the revolution. I I had to shake my head when I came to that moment in your book when you say that when Roosevelt delivering the speech got to freedom (laughs) Freedom from from Walt, no Republicans applauded, and some Democrats didn't Right. I think that shook up the Republicans. Samuel Grafton, the the then liberal New York Post columnist, said they sat in their hands. And then he got to freedom from fear, and that was when he said it. And I think a good number of Democrats, and you know who those were. They were the white supremacist Democrats. Yes, because he was talking about freedom from persecution and discrimination. Right, exactly. And that's when the the Dixiecrats would have sat on their hands, Democrats. Right. You know what's interesting, Bill, is if you read the exact wording of the speech and his idea of the four freedoms, 
Roosevelt states them in a way that might not have been so scary to the well-off. But Americans knew that he was talking to them. And when they heard freedom from want and freedom from fear, they had absolutely no doubt what he had in mind. I remember you're quoting something that FDR said to a friend of his, I think in 1930. 1930. What was it? He said to a friend, looking all around him with the devastation of the Great Depression, I think it's time that we make America fairly radical for a generation. Fairly radical? Fairly radical. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant that it was time to free ourselves of the conservative shackles of the 1920s, that it was time to enable working people to organize. It was time to provide old age pensions. We needed to create public works projects. We needed to address the environment, soil erosion. Agriculture was fundamental to Franklin Roosevelt. Over and over again, out on the campaign trail that year, contrary to what historians seem to to say, Roosevelt was saying, we need to do these things. That's what he meant by radical. But he didn't mean merely that he would do it or the Democrats in Congress would do it. As we saw in the coming years, he meant we will make America fairly radical for a generation. You know, Roosevelt, in many ways, I have a feeling this goes back to his his reading of Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans need a bit of rebellion. And I think Roosevelt understood that. You know, in 1938, just before the congressional midterm elections, he did a speech on the radio. And Roosevelt said, you know, if we don't keep pushing forward... Tory republicanism will. And if Tory republicanism does, then communism and fascism have greater chance of taking root in this country. You know, in 1926, it was not even a depression. His greatest worry was that if America didn't escape the conservative hole that it was in, that he worried for the nation's future. I think there's a trajectory in Roosevelt that's astounding, and I think historians ignore it. In 1932, he talked about an economic declaration of rights. In 1941, he proclaims the four freedoms. In 1944, he calls for a second Bill of Rights, specifically an economic Bill of Rights. There's a tremendous continuity in his thought. He's just articulating it more clearly. So if he were not calling for a revolution, what was he calling for? I think he knew that certain ills and injustices needed to be addressed. At one point, he says, real patriotism requires us to make an America where more of us get to share in what this country is about. And he said, real patriotism is about combating the evils and injustices. Now, he did that at a World War I memorial. He didn't try to rally people into some kind of military fever. He knew. He had a, but he had this incredible confidence in his fellow citizens. He believed that if you could empower working people, if you could afford the necessities to people, that if you could do these things, you create a better America. He knew that this country was a grand experiment in democracy. Going all the way back to 1770. All the way back. You know, Bill, you and I have this affection for Thomas Paine. And I can tell you one of the reasons I wrote this is that it was Franklin Roosevelt who was the first president since Thomas Jefferson who, while in office openly quoted and cited Thomas Paine's name. But you know that conservatives claim Thomas Paine, too. You do know that. I know that all too well. And the Tea Party did not come from the left. It came from ordinary people out there on the conservative side of things. Okay. There's a paradox here. I have a theory. (laughs) I have a theory. Historians are not supposed to have theories. I know, I know. They're supposed to have facts. Well, I have a theory. I believe Reagan could never have become president if 
we, if Democrats, progressives, and liberals had not already forgotten and forsaken the four freedoms. The only thing that enables conservatives to appeal to the vast majority of American working people is when that vast majority is disappointed and frustrated and angry. You're right. We have been led to forget. And who has led us to forget? So over and over again, we saw from right through the 30s, right through World War II, we saw corporate interests constantly trying to either directly suppress the, the ideas that are going to become the four freedoms, okay, by saying private enterprise, that's what makes America great, uh, forgetting the struggle for freedoms, speech, expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear that Roosevelt put into words. For example, Ronald Reagan. If you look closely at what Reagan does in the course of his presidency, he appears on uh, July 3rd, 1987, at the Jefferson Memorial at an event sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he says that he wants to advance four freedoms. He says... You know, we Americans need to cultivate, we need to remember, he says we need to remember. And we need to teach our children history and make sure they remember. America is about freedom. And what does he say? Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of enterprise. He literally expunges freedom from want and freedom from fear. So you say in here, after so many years of conservative political ascendancy and concerted class war from above, more than 30 years of deregulating corporate activity, reducing the taxes of the rich, assailing labor unions, shuttering industries, and neglecting the public infrastructure, the democratic legacy of that generation, Roosevelt's generation, continues to nourish us. Where do you see evidence of that? Nourishing us? Yeah, you say that. Well, you're over 65. You get Social Security? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I could take my students on a little field trip. CCC built that. The WPA built that. Milwaukee. The Metropolitan Service District, built by the New Deal. Over and over again, hospitals, schools, libraries, parks. I mean, the very things that we take for granted are the very things that young people were mobilized to make happen in the 1930s. I think this is a very important point you make in here, that his genius as a leader was not so much the exact legislation or the particular things that came out of it, but his power to mobilize workers, women, minorities, students, intellectuals, all these people you mentioned in the book. That was the power of rhetoric rhetoric and empathy, right? The democratic surge of the 1930s that in many ways he calls forth with his rhetoric and his speeches that say, here's what we need to do, that democratic surge When would you find that before, on that scale? Civil War to defend the Union? Yeah. The American Revolution? Maybe maybe it was the greatest democratic surge in American history. So is this, have you written this as an agenda for the Democratic Party? I don't know if the Democratic Party will attend to it. I want all of my fellow citizens to attend to this argument because I think Americans would respond if they heard it. Over and over again, what they hear from leaders is, yes, we can. And then at the moment of now, what are we going to do? They get left behind in favor of Washington, D.C. politics. Washington, D.C. politics. Talk to me as a conservative who has real doubts about the efficacy of government, who really believes that 
there's a, a threat right. from unlimited government and who thinks the New Deal didn't work the way you think it did. Two things. First of all, let's imagine we're both conservatives, wealthy conservatives. And you know what I would say? I'd say, we don't really hate government. It's working perfectly for us. Why should we hate government? Out in public, why do they have this animosity towards government? Because what this greatest generation did is they harnessed the powers of democratic government to make America freer, more equal, and more democratic. They harnessed the powers of democratic government. You know, they knew how to go about doing it because Roosevelt invited them to do so. And he brought to Washington these new dealers and sent them out around the country. I mean, he opened up Washington to Catholics, Jews, African-Americans, women. He made Washington connect with Americans, not simply to have a better political funnel sending out the messages, but to get those people out in the field going. Did you write this book to make people fight mad? Because they're going to be fighting mad on either side of the political spectrum when they read it. Yes, absolutely. I want them to be fighting mad. I want them to be fighting mad like Roosevelt was. I want them to say, we need to make America fairly radical for a generation. What we need to do is we need to go back and remember the kinds of things that Roosevelt knew, that there's deep in every American this desire to redeem the meaning of America. And he knew that there are ways of getting people to act because if you can speak to them as an American, remind them of who they are, invite them to to offer their labors, invite them to organize in the 1930s. I mean, organizers went out and said, you've got to organize. The president wants you in a union. It worked. Millions joined. And by the way, living standards rose, worker security improved, We get Social Security. I mean, look what we've done. And look what we're allowing to happen now. This cannot be the America that I imagined and most of my fellow Americans imagine. But they have forgotten, not the four freedoms as ideals, they have forgotten what it takes to realize them, that we must defend, sustain, and secure democracy by enhancing it. That's what Roosevelt knew. That's what Jefferson knew. And no one seems to remember that today. That's what we have to remind people of. And that's what the fight for the four freedoms does. What made FDR and the greatest generation truly great? Harvey J.K., thank you for being with me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Bill. I remember that day well, the 12th of April, 1945, the day Roosevelt died. I was 11 years old, and FDR had been president since before I was born. My father came home early from work. He'd been sitting high in the cab of his truck, waiting for the red light to change, when he heard someone on the street shouting, The president is dead! The president is dead! He immediately headed back to the garage, left the truck, and walked home in a hurry. Like so many Americans, he sat late into the evening, close to the console radio in our living room, listening for news about the president's death. It was the only time I had seen tears in his eyes, and it was years later before I understood. My father had left school in the fourth grade to pick cotton. His family needed his labor. 
After they married, he and my mother spent a year as itinerant field hands in West Texas, then returned to Oklahoma as tenant farmers until they were driven from the land when the bank foreclosed on its owner during the Great Depression. It was never apparent that FDR's New Deal materially made a difference in my father's life. But this I know, and I know it for certain. He believed President Roosevelt was on his side, fighting for common people like him. This man with a fourth-grade education and calloused hands and fingers with nubs from an accident at the cotton gin, he thought that fellow in the White House, born in New York's lush Hudson Valley, the son of landed gentry, Harvard-educated with pince-nez glasses and a long, slender cigarette holder aloft above his jutting jaw, he knew that fellow in the White House was his friend and champion. They, of course, never met. But on that Thursday afternoon in April, my father wept. At our website, BillMoyers.com, Harvey J.K. will be joining us for a web chat this coming Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Send us your questions in advance and join the conversation. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers and Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.